Colossians chapter 2. Let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that your word says that you are faithful and history proves that you are faithful and we believe you for the future, that you're faithful. And we see what's going on in our world today in the Middle East with Israel and it's gnarly, Lord. You're an absolute faithful God. You bring up nations and you bring them down. You know when a sparrow falls from its nest, how much more are you concerned about the dealings with your land today? Lord, you're in it and you're faithful and you're good. We don't understand all things. We know that there is sin, there are atrocities, there is real life loss. We trust you, but we pray for mercy. Mercy in the Middle East today, Lord, that you'd spare Jews, Arabs, Persians alike. That you would just have mercy as you work your plan. Thank you that you will restore the fortunes of Judah and the glory of Zion. Thank you that you are coming for your bride, the church. Even so, Lord, make us ready. Make us wise, make us aware, make us alert in these last days. Lord, speak to us profoundly through your word now about the benefits of the cross, the fullness of forgiveness, the power of your love, what you've done for us, Lord. Instruct us about these things in such a way that our lives would overflow with your glory, with your work, with your power, with forgiveness and grace, Lord. In these last days, we want to represent you rightly. So equip us now in these things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, listen, guys. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 15. Again, one of the richest passages in the entirety of the New Testament. We started last week. We had planned on going through verse 12. We didn't get there. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 today. And Lord willing, go all the way through verse 15. Let's read it. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. An incredible passage today. Wonderful theological truths for us to lay hold of. And I'm going to try to break it down into three simple points. Again, this dovetails with last week's lesson, so if you weren't here, you want to get that CD or DVD. But three points for today. Point number one. You have been both buried and raised with Christ Jesus. You have been buried and raised with Christ Jesus. Point number two, your sins have been both forgiven and removed by Christ Jesus. Amen? Your sins have been forgiven and removed. And point number three, your enemy, Satan, has been both disarmed and defeated by Jesus Christ. Amen? He has been disarmed and defeated. Let's get into it. Verse 12, telling us that we have been buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. We have been buried and raised with Christ through faith in the working of the power of God. Now, where this connects is in the concept of baptism. Understand that in the New Testament, the word baptism has both a literal and a figurative meaning. 
The literal meaning is just the meaning of the Greek word baptismo. It simply means to plunge, to dip, to immerse, okay? The literal meaning is to plunge, to dip, to immerse something in some substance or element. But the figurative meaning throughout the New Testament of baptism is to be identified with. When we talk about baptism, we talk about being identified with something. Now, water baptism, that is the Christian being immersed in water, symbolizes a literal union or identification that the Christian has with Christ Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The rite, the ordinance, the action of water baptism, being immersed in water, symbolizes a literal union or identification that the Christian has with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, this very real identification of us with the Lord takes place at salvation. The moment you're saved, the moment you come to God and say, God, I'm a sinner, and I repent of my sins, I understand that Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins. Forgive me, save me, be my Lord. The moment you do that in sincerity and truth, you are saved, you're born again. Salvation happens. It's at that moment where you become identified with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means this. It means that God now sees you and deals with you according to the merit and the work of Jesus. God sees you and deals with you according to both the work and the merit of Jesus Christ. That means he doesn't see you according to your own merit. Isn't that good? Because you ain't got none. He doesn't see you according to your work. Isn't that good? Because even the best ones are filthy rags, the book of Isaiah says. When you get saved, you become identified with Christ Jesus, meaning God only sees you through the merits, the account, the riches, the favor, the glory, the righteousness, and the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah, praise God. And so, technically what happens is when you're saved, you're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Okay, now very careful in my language there. When you're saved, you're baptized, immersed into the body of believers by the Holy Spirit. It's to be distinguished from baptism with the Holy Spirit, and we'll give you that, that distinguishment in a moment. But here's where we get that from. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 through 13 says this. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up only one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit. And we have all received the same Spirit. So when you get saved, you get simply placed into Christ's body. Immersed, dipped, baptized. And the agent, the one who does the baptizing, is the Holy Spirit. Baptized by the Holy Spirit. He's given to the believer as a seal for the day of redemption. Now, this baptism, of course, has to do with identification with Jesus Christ. He being the head of the body. Amen? And so generally when you go to identify somebody, what part of their body do you look at? You know, they're in a crowd. Are you looking down at people's feet to try to identify someone as they're walking down in a crowded street? No. 
you're looking up, looking for their head, right? And when you see their head, you recognize their head, then you can identify the rest of them with that head. We are the body of Christ. Jesus Christ is the head. And so we are identified by God when he looks with Christ Jesus, the head. That happens at salvation by the Holy Spirit baptizing us or immersing us into his body. Now, as I said, not to be confused with the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's spoken of by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, where in verse 5, Jesus says, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. So, salvation baptized into, identified with Jesus Christ in his body by the Holy Spirit. But then there is this other thing that the Lord spoke of, baptism with the Holy Spirit. And quite frankly, he told the disciples, don't do anything for me until you have it. Wait in Jerusalem until you've received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is power from on high to be my witnesses. Now, sometimes in the book of Acts, When people are saved, we see that the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. There's other times in the book of Acts where a group of people were saved. They're called disciples. But then later on, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming on them with power. Sometimes accompanied by signs, sometimes not accompanied by signs. But it is meant by God that every Christian would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you have it? Well, it might be easier to tell if you don't have it. How do you know if you don't have it? Well, your Christian life is drudgery. It's so often characterized by defeat. There's not an effectiveness of ministry. There's no outflow from your life that is representative of who Christ is. The Holy Spirit is given that we might be his witnesses. And we witness him in deed and in truth, in what we say and how we live. And if there's a lack of victory, a lack of power, a lack of witness in your life about who Jesus Christ is, maybe you haven't received the baptism of the Spirit yet. How do you get it? Jesus told us in the Gospels, he said, ask the Father and he will give you the Holy Spirit. And so today, at any time during the service, perhaps we'll pray together at the end. Father, baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I want the power of God from on high to be your witness. Understand that? So that's to be distinguished from baptism by the Spirit. To break it down a little further, in the baptism with the Spirit, spoken of in Acts 1, Jesus is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit is the element, right? And the power uh, to be witnesses is the issue. Compare that to John the Baptist, where in his baptism, John the Baptist was the baptizer, water was the element, and repentance was the issue. In the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Jesus does the baptizing. The element, or that which we're baptized with, is the Holy Spirit. And the issue is power to be as witnesses. And identifying with Christ Jesus at salvation, as we've been speaking about, um, the, the baptism by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a baptizer. And the body of believers is the element, that which we are immersed into. And identification with Christ and his body is the issue. Now, in our verse... Verse 12 of Colossians 2. Paul is talking about baptism as a means of identification. Both the identification that happens at salvation 
And, and the picture of it, the proclamation that happens when we're baptized in water in obedience to what the Lord said. And what it means is that we're identified, with, what it means when it says we're identified with him is that everything that Christ went through, we went through. When it says that he died, we died with him by way of identification. When it says that he was buried, we were buried with him by way of identification. When it says that he rose again, we rose with him by way of identification. Now it says in the verse in front of you, verse 12, that this was accomplished not through the agent of water or any work of man. It says it was accomplished by faith in the working of the power of God. By faith in the working of God. And that word working is where we get our word energy. It's accomplished by the energy of God. When you're born again, there is an energy, the power of God, that causes us to be saved and identify with Christ. This power spoken of in this verse is, we're told in the New Testament, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That is the power that assures our salvation. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are protected in our salvation by the power of God. There's no greater power in all the world. Amen? The Greek verbs are very expressive in verse 12. We were co-buried with him, co-raised with him, and co-made alive with him. Just like it says in Romans 8, we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Just like it says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. It's, it's already done. It's already completed in the economy, the mind, and the work, and by the power of God. Your body is here, but positionally, you're already in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. You may not have much right now, but positionally, you are a co-heir with Christ Jesus. It may seem like your nasty, old, sinful flesh is putting a whooping on you, but positionally, it was buried with Christ Jesus. It might seem like there's not a newness or a freshness or a power or a quality of life, but positionally, you have newness of life in Christ Jesus. And that is the most real thing in the world, being identified with him. Now, to symbolize that, every Christian ought to be baptized in water. It's a powerful picture. It's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. We're to make disciples, baptizing them. Every Christian must be baptized in water. Again, it's not the water that saves us. It's the power of God. But the Lord has given us a wonderful picture thereof. It's not void of significance. It's not void of meaning. It's not void of value before God. We're to engage in it. And what we do when we're baptized is we say, my life is no longer my own. I've been crucified with Christ, buried with him, raised to newness of life. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith unto him. Galatians 2.20. And we make a public proclamation of such. A public proclamation that I'm now identified with him. It's like when two people stand at the altar and they exchange wedding rings. I have this wedding ring that says, I am identified with Caitlin Merrick. Identified with her. Inseparable. The two have become one. It's just a symbol, but there's tremendous important power in it, isn't there? Isn't there? I am identified with that woman. Do not tear asunder what God has put together. There was a real spiritual work that God has accomplished, but there is this outward manifestation of the inward reality. Now, the inward reality is you died with Christ and you rose to new life. The outward manifestation is baptism in water. Now, with water baptism, other believers are the baptizers. Water is the element. And identification... With Christ Jesus is the issue. Any believer can baptize any believer. Isn't that cool? 
You don't need to go to a priest or a pastor or an elder or anyone else. Any believer could baptize any other believer. It's awesome. You should try it. In fact, you should go out today, lead someone to Jesus Christ, take them down to tar pits and dunk them in the water. It's wonderful. I've done it. It's awesome. But other other believers now are the baptizers. Water is the element. Identification is the issue. And there's a richness of symbolism we glean from Scripture. I'm going to read to you a quote from Wayne Grudem, his systematic theology, this little quote on baptism. He says, The waters of baptism have an even richer symbolism than simply the symbolism of the grave. The waters also remind us of the waters of God's judgment that came upon unbelievers at the time of the flood or the drowning of the Egyptians in the Exodus. Similarly, when Jonah was thrown into the deep, he was thrown down to the place of death because of God's judgment on his disobedience, even though he was miraculously rescued and thus became a sign of the resurrection. Therefore, those who go down into the waters of baptism really are going down into the waters of judgment and death, death that they deserve from God for their sins. When they come back up out of the waters of baptism, it shows that they have come safely through God's judgment only because of the merits of Jesus Christ with whom they are united in his death and resurrection. Wonderful. The the best explanation of the fullness of it is given to us in Romans 6. Please turn there. Romans 6. We'll be back to Colossians in just a moment, but go to Romans 6. Very practical stuff here in Romans 6. We referenced it a little bit last week when we were talking about Colossians 2.11. We're just going to read a few verses starting in verse 3 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, that baptism is talking about the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the moment we become believers. And of course, as we just said, it's signified, it's pictured, it's symbolized by baptism in water. Verse 4. Therefore, we have been... I want you to read the Bible this morning with faith. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We have been buried with him. We have been crucified with Christ. The Bible does not lie. It does not have errors in it. It is not playing games. It is not psychology. It's not wishful thinking. We have been by the power of God. We are identified with the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. That old person is dead. They've been buried. That old sinful nature was circumcised with a circumcision without hands, as we saw in our teaching last week. It has been accomplished. It is done. He's dead. And we have been raised to newness of life. And so that newness of life speaks of the quality of life, the freshness of life, the power of life, the abundant life, Jesus mentioned in John 10.10. And so your life ought to be characterized by it. How do you know if your Christianity is happening? It's characterized by this newness of life, this abundance, this fullness, this joy, this peace, this love, this patience, this kindness, this gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Peace that surpasses comprehension. Newness of life because of the work of Jesus Christ and us being identified with his resurrection from the dead. 
Verse 5. For if we have become united with him, there it is, identified with him, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. He who has died is freed from sin. We talked about last week that sin nature, how it's been cut off, rendered inoperative, removed. Now that sinful nature was alive to sin. It was culpable to the works of Satan. But now that it's dead, Sin no longer has power over you. Allow me to illustrate. You know, there's this little smoothie place in town called Kajay. It's awesome. Have you guys been there? It's wonderful. I love Kajay. And they have this one smoothie, the apple horchata smoothie. Unbelievable. Don't get anything else on the menu. This thing is insane. I tried something because of peer pressure the other day. Other than that, and I was cursing myself (laughs) and the people that pressured me into it. The apple horchata smoothie at Kajay is incredible. It is irresistible. It is wonderful and glorious in every way. It will probably be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. (laughs) I cannot resist the apple horchata smoothie from Kajay. Irresistible to me. I could have just eaten 10 burritos. I will drink a smoothie. I don't care how full I am. I don't care how satiated, how just, I will drink it. If I see you with one, I will take it from you. (laughs) I cannot resist. Irresistible. I cannot help myself. But when I die, you could come to my funeral and you could place apple horchata kaji smoothies all around my casket or my ashes or whatever you do with me. I don't care. (laughs) You could place it all around You could stick the straws into my mouth. I will have no power over me. I will be free from Kajay at that moment. I will be absolutely free because I'm dead. It has no power, no attraction. Now, why can't we believe it when the Bible says we're dead to sin? Why can't we believe it? We're dead to sin. It has no power over us anymore. It has no power. We're dead to it. Continuing on, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, or here's how we live now in light of this. Even so, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. As the King James says, reckon yourself, or as it really means in the Greek, account or compute yourself. Add it up. Compute yourself to be dead to sin. The Bible says that you're dead to sin. Compute yourself, reckon yourself, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so here's practical instruction for your daily living in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not let it reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the salvific work of God in your life, you can 
not let sin reign in you. Christians, you need to know that. Too many Christians compromise on this area. You know, too many Christians are, are, are caught up and they, they think that, that they just cannot escape this hook in their flesh. They cannot get free from this power of sin. It, it's too deep in them. It's too much. It just overwhelms them. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible says the opposite. Don't you contradict the Bible. The Bible says don't let sin reign. Have you ever heard of 2 Timothy 2.22? Flee youthful us. And pursue faith, love, and righteousness with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Flee! Did you ever read about what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife propositioned him? He got up and he left. Don't let sin say no. Your mama teach you that word? Say no, sin, no. I will not do it anymore. I do not partner with you. I do not submit myself to you. I will not let you take advantage of me. No, in the name of Jesus. The Bible says we can do that. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out that you might bear up underneath it. The Bible says very clearly that it is theologically impossible for the Christian to be tempted beyond that which they are able to handle by the power of the Holy Spirit. So immediately now you rob the old dead man and you rob Satan from that lie of, well, he just couldn't help himself. The devil made me do it. He can't make you do it. The Bible says he's a defeated foe. He can't make you do it. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You let sin reign. You did it. Take responsibility for it. Repent of it. Walk in newness of life and the victory of the cross. And it says in verse 13, And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as, right, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Practical instruction again. Don't present your members, the parts of your body, to sin for unrighteousness. That's what we did in the old life, right? It's exactly what we did. We dressed that old body up best as we could, made it just smell good and look good. And then we went downtown and we said, sin, here I am. We presented ourselves to sin. We presented the members of our body to sin for unrighteousness. Here I am. Let's go for it. The Bible says you're a Christian. Don't do that. But present the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. Go ahead and get as good looking as you can, but come before the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. Use me for your kingdom. Use me for righteousness sake. Use me for your glory. Use me, Lord, according to righteousness. For sin shall no longer be master over you. Now, the fact that that old man is dead means that those shameful things that you did are done with. Be free from them in Jesus' name. Those horrific deeds that you engage with, well, the person that did those is dead. It's over. Any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become brand new. The things that were done to you, the old person, those things, 
that debt against that person? Well, that person is dead. Someone wronged you? Was there injustice? Was there perversion? Was there corruption? Was there pain? Was there wounding? I understand, but you need to also understand that that old person that that was done to is dead. And you have newness of life in Christ Jesus. Now you could hang out in the mortuary if you want, but I'm going to hang out with Jesus. You can wallow in the past if you want, but I'm going to forget what lies behind and press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That debt, yes, it was very real. I know it. It hurt very much. It was horrific. But that old person is dead. And so that injustice is now defeated. That debt is no longer valid. Are you holding someone in debt for what they did to the old person? Well, the old person is dead. They can't pay that old person back. I'm sorry, they're gone. Newness of life in Christ Jesus. Just be free in his name today. Amen? Amen. Going back to Colossians 2 now. Now, having said all that, I'm very aware of the fact that from time to time, we all need help. Sometimes a lot of help. We know the power and the promises of God, but we're just so caught up. We're just so embroiled in it. We're just so snared in it. You know, sometimes sin is like a net. Sometimes it feels like the harder you try to get away, the more you get caught up. And so from time to time, we need help. And that's okay to need help. There are many times in my life where I need help. I need someone to hold me accountable. I need someone to slap me. I need someone to hug me. I need someone to encourage me. I need someone to pray for me. There are times where I so feel the attacks of the enemy and the weight of darkness. I just need people to lay hands on me and pray for freedom from that and for newness and to just pray the life of Jesus Christ over me and in me. Sometimes I've gotten so caught up in my own sin that it's just a stronghold, just a hook in my flesh. I need brothers and sisters to come around with the power of prayer and to just tear that out in Jesus' name. We need help from time to time. It's okay. We have the power and the promises of God and we have the body of Christ. If you need help, tell somebody. I can't help all of you. It's a big church. Pastor G, he could do a lot, but not all of you. It's a big church. But you can help each other. You can hold each other accountable. When one is weak, you can hold them up. You can help them to walk. You can pray for them. You can claim the promises of God for their life. You can lay hands on them for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit and for freedom, amen? Ought to be doing these things, church. So if you need help walking in newness of life, get help. Now, verses 13 and 14, and point number two. It says in verse 13, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So point number two is, your sins have been both forgiven and removed. Point number one was, you've been buried and raised with Christ. Point number two, your sins have been both forgiven and removed. It says there in verse 13, that we're at one time dead in our trespasses and sins says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. That before coming to Jesus Christ, before getting saved, you're spiritually dead. Now, the world hates to hear this, don't, don't they? 
Anybody that's engaged in evangelism, you know that the world hates to hear this because you'll tell them, hey man, you are spiritually dead because of your sins and your transgressions until you receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And they just get so offended. What do you mean I'm spiritually dead? I'm super spiritual. I burn sage and I watch the dolphins and I, I'm super duper spiritual. The world loves to think that they're spiritual because of these silly, silly external things that they do. But the inward reality, according to the word of God, is that they're dead in their sin until the spirit of God brings them to life through repentance and regeneration. And then and only then are we made spiritually alive to God. Prior to that, dead in our trespasses and our sins. And the way that we're made alive, as it says at the end of verse 13, is when he forgives all of our transgressions. Now, look at the extent of this. It says in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt. Certificate of debt, let's talk about that. King James Version words it the handwriting of ordinances. New King James calls it the handwriting of requirements. The NIV calls it the written code. The New Living Translation calls it the record that contained the charges against us. But the New American Standard says here, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. Put succinctly, it is an IOU from humanity to God. An IOU from humanity to God. Now, it's an extensive IOU. It starts with the ancestral debt of Adam. It starts with original sin. It starts with the sin of Adam. And that we, because of the fall of man, because of the sin of Adam, have all inherited a sin nature and sin guilt. It says so in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Speaking of Adam. We are guilty because of his guilt as our ancestor. And if you think that's not fair, the Bible goes ahead and tells you in Romans chapter 5, and you're also guilty because you yourself have sinned. If anyone were to say, well, that's not fair that I inherited this sin nature and this sin guilt for Adam. I didn't sin. Well, you're already sinning, man. So this certificate of debt starts with the ancestral debt from Adam. We are in debt to God as sinners. The second thing that we see about it is it's a debt incurred because of the law. Because of the law of Scripture. It says in Galatians 4.22, But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin. The Scripture makes it very clear that every single person is a sinner and is without excuse and there is not one who seeks God, nay, not one who is good, according to Romans chapter 3. And so there is the beginning of the debt in Adam's sin and what we inherit from him. The debt is further incurred because there is a totality of Scripture compared to which we fall painfully short. Now the Jews owed even a further debt to God because when the law was received by Mo at Mount Sinai, Moses came down with the law, he related it in Exodus 24 to the Jews, and they said in verse 3, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Bad thing to say. There were 613 commandments. Mo, this sounds good, man. Sinai was killer for you. Long time up there, but okay, everything the Lord has said, we'll do it. They just bound themselves when they said that, and now they incurred debt because they did not do it. 
The Gentile, the non-Jew, has also incurred a similar debt because of the conscience given to him by God that we spoke of last week, that the law of God is written upon the hearts of those who did not have the written law from Mount Sinai. And so there's a further debt of obedience to God, Romans 2, 14 through 16, speaking to the Gentiles, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now, every time someone either cognizantly knew of a commandment of God and transgressed it, or knew of the standard of God and fell short of it, or didn't know but had the witness of conscience and the law of God written upon their heart, and they went ahead and went against that anyway, there's a further debt incurred every single time. We're told that we have been storing up wrath for ourselves in heaven. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now the moralists... And the reincarnationists, however you say it, they like to think that somehow their good is going to outweigh their bad. That they're laying up merit before God. That they're doing good things. And it'll work out with God. God will go, ah, the good, the oh, okay, come on in. The Bible doesn't teach that. Nowhere does the Bible say that for the ungenerate, God is recording their good deeds. In fact, it simply says in Isaiah that even their most righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And the moralist and the false religionist, though he thinks he's earning favor with God, the Bible tells us explicitly that they are earning wrath with God. Storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. As if the ancestral debt of Adam weren't enough. Then we have the debt of the law added and then we have the debt of the agreement to obey added by the Jews and the law written on our hearts by the Gentiles and now the daily accumulation of wrath every time we err. Wrath, God says. You err again. Wrath. You err again. Wrath. You err again. Wrath. And there is nowhere in heaven God watching going, oh, Oh, you rescued the little puppy? Oh, blessings. Oh, you gave a couple bucks? Oh, you're awesome. Oh, you went to church? Look, I can't believe this guy, Michael Gabriel. Get a hold of him. He's awesome. Oh, story not blessings. It doesn't say that. It says only wrath. Only wrath. It says in Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 5, Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. That is the certificate of debt. That which is owed to God, the IOU, the saved up wrath is written before God. Now we are told that at the judgment of man, we're told both in the Old Testament and the New, Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 and Revelation chapter 20 starting in verse 12, that at the great white throne judgment, the final judgment of man, that those who have not received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, they have not been identified with him they will stand before God and be judged according to that which is written in the books. And remember, there's not a book on the good stuff. That's filthy rags before God. There are just 
the sinful deeds of man. Let's read about it in Revelation 20, starting in verse 12. It says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Okay, there's those books. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, to be distinguished from the first books. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. This is what is called the resurrection of the wicked. There is in the economy of God a resurrection for every one of his creation. Biblical doctrine teaches that there is the resurrection of the righteousness, of the righteous, excuse me, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of the wicked. The righteous are resurrected to eternal life, and the wicked are resurrected to judgment. And this is the judgment right here. Continues and says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. Death and Hades, that holding place, are consumed and defeated by Christ and and thrown into the lake of fire, properly called hell. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now there's the book of life and then there's other books. You're not in both. You're in either one. You're either in the other books, which according to Isaiah 65 is the record of wicked deeds, or you're in the Lamb's book of life. The moment you get saved, you come to God and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Save me according to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. The moment you're saved, then the entry of your life in these books is blotted out. The certificate of debt is nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, having been destroyed, taken out of the way. And then there's a transfer. There's an accounting transfer that takes place. And now your name is written. It is credited in the Lamb's book of life. Now it's called the Lamb's book of life because it's the book of Jesus Christ's life. And the reason that your name is put in there is because you, through baptism, identification, you are identified with Jesus Christ and his perfect life. He lived a perfect life because we couldn't. And when you say, forgive me of my sins, he cancels out the certificate of debt, your page in these books. He transfers your name to the Lamb's book of life. And when God the Father reads it, it is the account of Jesus Christ. It is his perfect life. It is his perfect record. It is his perfect obedience. It is his atoning death and his resurrection from the dead. And God looks and he sees your name consumed by his life written in his book. And God doesn't just go, oh, I guess you're kind of making it into heaven, you scallywag. God goes, well done, good and faithful servant. My son, come inherit the riches that are yours in Christ Jesus. Come as a co-heir of my perfect eternal son. Do you understand what it means when you're saved? Do you understand how incredible that is? Do you understand the power and the depth and the wonder and the love of the cross that that debt was nailed to the cross in the person of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. And that old stuff, it is removed as far as the east is from the west. It is done. Dead. 
gone. All things are brand new and every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ for you. It's glorious. It's wonderful. Do not let Satan tell you otherwise. Do not let Satan tell you otherwise. Martin Luther had that experience. I'll read to you a little snippet about Martin Luther here from R. Kent Hughes' commentary on Colossians. He says, Martin Luther experienced the reality of this truth in a dream in which he was visited at night by Satan, who brought to him a record of his own life written in his own hand. The tempter said to him, Is that true? Did you write it? The poor, terrified Luther had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. But suddenly, the reformer turned to the tempter and said, It is true, every word of it, but right across it, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. In John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus Christ, just before he gave up the ghost on the cross, said, Telestai, paid in full. It is finished. That certificate of debt, which was yours and mine, was nailed to the cross, destroyed, taken out of the way. And Jesus said, it's done. It is finished. Don't let the devil tell you otherwise. He wants to get you all bound up in shame, in condemnation, feeling filthy and unworthy and rejected. But the truth of God and the promise of Scripture is that in Christ Jesus, you are accepted. You are loved and adored. You are washed you are cleansed, you are sanctified. You are already seated in the heavenlies with him. You are a co-heir with Christ Jesus. You are his precious child. Don't let the devil or anybody else tell you anything different. Because it says in verse 15, when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him or through the cross. And that is the last point. Your enemy has been both disarmed and defeated. Your enemy has been disarmed and defeated. Because listen, his position in your life, his influence in your life, his power over your life was secured by the existence of the certificate of debt. But the certificate of debt for you has been removed, done away with. Therefore, he's defeated. He's got no position. Satan's ammunition is sin. But we already read in Romans chapter 6 that the power of sin is broken because you're dead to it. And Satan's power is death. He tempted Adam. Adam sinned and so death entered through one man. Romans chapter 5 tells us. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection which we will experience that the sting of death has been removed. That the second death at hell, that the finality of it, the horror of it has been removed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so your enemy is disarmed and defeated. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 15. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, you and I. He himself, that is Jesus, 
likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Satan loves people to be in slavery. Fear of sin, the power thereof. The certain expectation of judgment, but at the cross of Jesus Christ, that power of the enemy was absolutely removed. You've got to believe it. Now, the New Testament word for Satan, one of them, is diabolos. It's a compound word in the Greek. Balo meaning to cast between or to throw between, or just to throw, excuse me. Dia meaning between. So one of the New Testament words for Satan is one who throws himself between. Dia between, balo, to cast intentionally. So Satan will always seek to try to throw himself between you and your Jesus. Your job as a Christian is to keep him out of the relationship. He will always try to come between you and the promises of God. He can't really, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 declares. Not power, not principality, not angel, not demon, not any created thing can separate you from the love of Christ. But, but if he can get you wallowing in your shame, if he can get you woe is mean, if he can get you angry, bitter, disillusioned, then he's thrown himself between you and all the promises of God. And all you got to do is say, Satan, get out. You know, you have authority over him in Jesus' name. If you don't know that, you haven't read the Bible. If you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible. You have authority over him in Jesus' name. He tries to get between you and Jesus. Say, get out! In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, be gone. I don't partner with you. I'm not hanging with you. I'm not listening to you. I'm not buying the lie. Cast yourself out of here. This is an A-B conversation. See your way out of it, Satan. He is called by Strong's Concordance the traducer. I had to look it up myself. It means one who speaks badly or tells lies about someone else so as to damage their reputation. His number one goal is to damage the reputation of Jesus Christ by lying to you and making you think that you are still in your sins and that you have shame and you have condemnation and that you're powerless to resist. That mars the reputation of Jesus Christ. If you stand firm and you resist that, then he's happy to mar Jesus' bride. What a dirty scumbag Satan is. If you can't get to the groom, he'll go after his bride, the church. And so he'll lie to you about the church. He'll lie to you about other parts of the church, about other people in the church, about other denominations, about other churches in town, about the person that sits across from you, about the person in your home group, about the person that didn't show up, about the person in town, about this and that. He throws himself in between. It is the goal of Satan to throw himself in between God and his people and his people and his people. He's always seeking to do that. And so don't give them an opportunity. With reference to the old life and the old man, lay it aside. Walk in newness of life. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, thereby giving the devil an opportunity. We've talked about this before. Let me just say it one more time. There in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says, if you let the sun go down on your anger, that is you harbor it, you nurture it, you let bitterness entrench your heart. That you give Satan an opportunity. That word opportunity in Greek is tapas. It always means in the New Testament a literal geographical location. It's 
language of spatiality. It means area, location, property, real estate. You harbor bitterness in your heart against what was done to you in the past, someone that let you down, someone that has wronged you, someone that's not doing it your way, and you give Satan a place in your life. You give it to him. He's got no power. Satan cannot harm the Christian that won't harm himself. But the weird thing about bitterness and anger and wrath is that it only hurts you. And if you choose to let your heart get entrenched in it, then you give Satan every opportunity according to the New Testament. You give him tapas, location in your life, and he's all too happy to come in and set up camp. He's all too happy to come in and set up camp. That's why it says in verse 32 at the end of Ephesians chapter 4 that we're to be tenderhearted, kind, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. Tenderhearted and kind, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. Your homework, please write this down, is to read Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. There you will see that according to the word of God, it is an absolute, utter, deplorable crime to receive forgiveness from God and then withhold it from someone else. You'll see it there. It's a parable that Jesus tells of a man who has forgiven this debt of millions of dollars. And then there's this guy that owes him a few bucks. And after just being forgiven this tremendous debt, he goes and starts to strangle this guy that owes him a few bucks and throws him in prison until he repays it. And Jesus says at the end there that if you throw people in the prison of your anger and wrath and bitterness, Jesus says in the last verse, verse 35 of Matthew 18, so your heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. I'm not going to excuse that scripture for you. I'm not going to explain it away. I'm not going to rationalize it. Jesus said in other places that if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. That's the reality of the Bible. It is an atrocious crime in the mind and the heart of God to have that giant certificate of debt canceled out at the expense of Jesus Christ and then does to say, well, I'm not going to forgive him. Look what he did to me. What did he do to you? You're dead. You died with Christ Jesus. They don't owe you anything. Set them free and be free or let Satan have a field day in your heart. Those are the choices. I've had to come to grips with this. This is the single most difficult issue in my Christian life is my attitude toward others of bitterness, envy, jealousy, wrath, feeling like I'm owed something, feeling like I had rights. Wait a minute. I died with Christ Jesus. Dead man ain't got no rights. Oh, hello, sir. I see you're dead. I'm going to read you your rights. You got no rights. Surrender it to the Lord today. Don't let Satan have a field day with you. In our church, he was made a public display of, a public spectacle. That means that Christ Jesus stood on the back of his neck and rubbed Satan's face into the dirt. He was absolutely triumphed over. Why do we give him an opportunity? Let's forgive as we've been forgiven. It's the hardest thing in the world. If you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a fresh feeling to come upon you to do this, please stand right now.
I'm the first to stand. What I'm saying is I need the power of the Holy Spirit at this moment in my life to enable me to forgive as I've been forgiven. If you need that, stand up. Extend your hands like this so as to receive from the Lord. Lord, we're here with open hands just signifying that we surrender. We surrender, Lord. We surrender to your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness and the work of your cross. And we surrender every debt against us as you surrender the debt against us. Every injustice that was done to us, we surrender it right now. We render it powerless. Every foul thing, we commit it to your freedom. Everyone that wronged us, we set them free as you have set us free. Every wound, we just proclaim ourselves healed in the name of Jesus. We need the fullness of your power to do this, Lord. It's so hard. We're so wicked. And so right now, in accordance to your word, we ask that Jesus, you would fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, you would come upon us to be witnesses of Christ Jesus, to be witnesses of that forgiveness and that grace and that mercy and that peace and that joy and that patience and that kindness and that gentleness and that faithfulness and that self-control. We need that fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Holy Spirit, fall upon us. Fall, Holy Spirit. Empower us for righteous living.